Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. Good morning. I heard that. Okay, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm glad you're with us, and you are here uh, during a series through the Gospel of Luke that uh, we're in the middle of. We're in Luke chapter 10, and I've got a great story for you today. We're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan, a beautiful story about a man in need and the villain who showed him mercy. Uh, The story is powerful because it's so relatable. It's eminently relatable as a story because pain and suffering are part of the universal human experience. And so we've all been there, right? We've all experienced some kind of pain, suffering, and when we're in significant pain, there's a need for the healing touch of other human beings. And that is exactly what happens in this story. There's a reason why one mile from here, we have a house of healing, as it were, a physical house of healing, a hospital called Good Samaritan. It's It's got the name Good Samaritan because of what we see in this story. We see a story of of a healing hand, of a man who reached out to another man who was suffering. And throughout church history, this is part of our tradition, part of our heritage, is that Christians recognize the dignity of every human being and the Christian duty to help and serve those who are suffering. Lots of hospitals have Christian names. I just... Thinking through a quick list this morning, we've got uh, Bethesda, biblical name, St. Elizabeth, uh, biblical plus Catholic. <laughs> um, there's Mercy, Mercy Health. Um, not so much, I mean, it's a biblical concept anyway. Um, the Christ Hospital, it's right by where I live, the Christ Hospital, of course, Good Samaritan. This is, Christians build hospitals because Christians care about suffering. And you extrapolate that to all sorts of different human suffering, and you're going to find Christians involved because Christians care about people that are hurt because we see it modeled in our Savior, and He commanded us to do it. So we're going to look at today one of the biggest reasons why, and that's because Jesus taught this to us in this parable. So let's dig in. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at this story beginning in verse 25. 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus, him, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Stop there. The lawyer was not being sincere. We learned that at the outset because it says he was testing Jesus. He wasn't asking a sincere question. He was trying to trap Jesus and get him to say something that he could use to oppose and accuse him. But the question itself is still relevant. The conversation is relevant. In fact, it's one of the most relevant questions of all of human, uh, the human experience. And that is, how can I live forever? How can we escape death, the ultimate 
uh, peril that every human faces? How can we escape the ultimate kind of pain and suffering? Well, Jesus answers him, well, what does the Old Testament law say? Jesus always affirms the Scripture. He never overturns it. He never speaks against it. He always affirms even the Old Testament Scripture. And he says, what does the Old Testament law say? Well, the man quotes Deuteronomy and Leviticus and smushes them together. And he said, well, you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that was Deuteronomy. Then Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's referring to these texts, but those two texts are a summary of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments, there's ten of them, and there's, you know, the two tables of the laws, another way to say it. Commandments one through four are our duties to God. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the first four of the Ten Commandments represent that. The second table of the law, Commandments five through ten, is love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's saying the Ten Commandments summarized by these two uh, scriptures, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which the Ten Commandments represents the whole of the Old Testament law. So he's basically, uh, he gives an excellent answer. He's, he's right. And what does Jesus say? Great job. Spot on. You are 100% correct. A plus, that's the right answer. Do this, <laughs> not just give the right answer, but do this and you will live. So all you got to do is perfectly obey the law of God in every way for the rest of your life. Uh, internal motivations, external actions, do that and you'll live. Now, the Old Testament law, let's make sure we're clear about this. The Old Testament law was given to a covenant people. And the covenant was predicated upon the grace of God to save them. So it's a, it's a big misunderstanding about the Old Testament that we look to the Old Testament and it's like, oh, they were saved by their actions, but in Jesus we're saved by grace. That is absolutely false. God's people are always saved by grace. The means that that grace is administered, uh, there's, there's, it, it can change. Ultimately, it is all Jesus. But when he points back to the Old Testament, he's saying this is... Uh, the administration of God's grace. So the Ten Commandments were given to a covenant people who were already saved by grace. The book of Exodus chapters 1 through 19 is all about God's merciful saving acts to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. So the covenant people were saved by grace, not by works. However, the Ten Commandments were given to those people to show them this is how saved people are to behave. So the law is like to show people who are already saved what life is like, to what, what they should do, what people that are saved by grace, how they need to act. And that's the Ten Commandments, which is summarized even further in the two great commandments, the love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, do this and you will live. Jesus is not saying, oh, well, be perfect. Uh, like, like you, you, you have to uh, obey the law. That's how you'll get saved. He's referring to the covenant of God's grace. Now, it's one thing to have the right answer, as the lawyer did, but it's an, an entirely different thing to live it out. And that's why Jesus said, not just believe that and you'll live, but do this and you will live. So the lawyer kept pressing. He's looking for an angle. And so verse 29 says he's looking to justify himself because right away he was like, well, I haven't done this, so I need to find some other way. And Jesus kind of 
presses the obligation on him. So then he asks the question, okay, uh, if I'm to love my neighbor as myself, who's my neighbor? And that tells us something about his understanding of the law. He's looking for a loophole. He's looking for some way around what the law says. He's trying to shrink the law down to the size of his ability to follow it. Another way to say it is he's asking, when does the law not apply to me? And so Jesus answers that question by doing what Jesus does. And he says, well, once upon a time, let me tell you about that. He gave him a case study, or as we know them, parables. And this is the story he tells. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Pause there. Let me show you a picture. This is the Jericho Road. That's the road that Jesus is telling a story about. It's 17 miles from the city of Jerusalem down, it's all downhill, down into Jericho, and it winds through this desert area. Very dangerous. And there's not much along the way. Here's another picture. This is the, the kind of terrain that would have been difficult to navigate. And biblical travelers were always advised to keep plenty of water and chapstick in their fanny pack, as these folks have here. Uh, picture, next one. There's another picture. So just imagine a man is traveling. Presumably he's alone. And he's traveling along this road. And he gets mugged. Somebody robs him, strips, off of his, strips his clothes off of him, and beats him half dead. So this man's in horrible shape. There's nobody around that can come and help him. And so he's in desperate need, and he wouldn't survive. He wouldn't survive on his own, just left as he was. But, good news, a priest comes along. Ah, one of the good guys, one of God's people, one of the representatives, the workers of the temple, somebody who would know the law of God, somebody would come along and surely would be able to help him. But he doesn't. No, he kind of <laughs> crosses the other side of the road and gets away from him. Well, then a Levite comes along. Okay, well, okay, the priest, he was just having a rough day and he's probably busy. But now a Levite is here. So this is somebody who is from the tribe from where all the priests come from. Surely this Levite would be able to help. But no, he kind of steps aside and walks on his way and leaves the man there. And so in the story, the tension builds because you have a man who's bleeding and dying and in pain. He's suffering. He's not going to make it. And two people have already passed by on this lonely road and they didn't offer him any help. So he's going to die out there here on the side of the road and nobody's going to help him. What's he going to do? But then... Cue the Darth Vader music. A Samaritan comes along. Now, these are bad guys. Samaritans were despised. 
So he's got, I mean, this is like, oh no. The last thing you want is a Samaritan to come through there, so he'll probably finish the job and kill him because the Samaritans are just such horrible people. Probably kick him in the side or something like that. Now, if you didn't know this already, the Samaritans were, they were, they were just despised people. And of, of this period of time, they would have been regarded universally as the villains. They were hated by the Jewish people. They were hated because they were considered half-breeds. What I mean is that they were half Jewish, half Gentile. And of course, if you're Jewish, you know, being Jewish, physically descendant from Abraham and have been able to trace your lineage through a family tree, that's a huge deal to you. But they, the Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile. They came from tainted stock. But they were, if, if there's, there's a certain kind of hatred that you reserve for people that are closest to you. So it's not like they're just these these crazy far-off Gentiles. It's like, well, they're, they're half Jewish. So, so it's, it's close enough to us relationally to where we feel like these, they're even worse, right? So Jesus could have just as well have said in our context, you know, and then a Sith Lord came strolling down the road. Or then a, a pack of orcs came running through this area. And you would think like, oh, this is the worst thing that could happen. But this guy, the, the Samaritan, the villain, does the unexpected thing. He's the one, Jesus said, that had compassion. Not the priest, not the Levite. Now, some scholars have speculated. You know, um, why, why wouldn't the priest or the Levite do anything? Some would say, well, maybe it's because they wouldn't have wanted to defile themselves by touching a body that maybe they saw him and would have presumed him to be dead, and that would have made them ceremonially unclean and unable to fulfill their duties in the temple. We don't know. Um, what we do know, Jesus doesn't give us all the reason. It's a fictional story. But what we do know is that Jesus intentionally presents a character that would be a universally acknowledged to be a bad character, presents him in a positive light. And this is, this is a feature of Luke's writing. There's these themes of dramatic reversal where the ones entering the kingdom of God are the unexpected ones. While the expected ones, the priest and the Levite, they didn't love God. They didn't love their neighbor. So they were, they were first in their relationship to the covenant, but they were last in that they weren't keeping their covenant duties. But the Samaritan, who would have been far, further off from the covenant as, a, as somebody who is, who is uh, of tainted stock, he was outcast. He would have been cursed. But we see him doing the things that demonstrate alignment with the kingdom of God. He would have been last, and we see him being first. Verse 33 said, the Samaritan had compassion. Compassion. The word means to be moved with pity or sympathy and to show concern for the suffering of somebody else. That's compassion. And the word choice is, is important because these are words that we see associated with God the Father and with Christ the Son. So God the Father is compassionate. Psalm 103:13 says, "As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust." Beautiful verse. Wonderfully reassuring reminder that God is a good father. 
And like any good father, his compassion for his children. Father knows that we're but dust. So like this man who's bleeding and dying on the side of the road, the Samaritan is moved in compassion towards this man, and that would have reminded them of the compassion of the father that he has towards his children. Jesus is also compassionate. Just in the book of Luke, a few chapters earlier, Luke chapter 7, the Lord saw the woman who was suffering and said, verse seven thirteen, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And now here in Luke 10, we see the Samaritan was compassionate. As he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Meaning he saw this man who was in legitimate need, legitimate pain, suffering, alone, bleeding, and dying. And the Samaritan had compassion. It broke his heart. Verse 34, what did he do? Well, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So we see his compassion drove him to take action, right? Without hesitation, he immediately went to work. And the Samaritan had no prior relationship with this man. He was a stranger to him, so not a family member, not a friend or anything like that. It was a stranger, so there's no familial or otherwise any obligation to him, but purely just the man's need itself extracted a, a, a compassion, a, a demand, an obligation from the Samaritan because of the compassion. The point there is that neighbor love doesn't require the prior relationship. It is it's based on the extremity of the need, the urgency of the need, and that it can extend even to strangers. So the Good Samaritan um, sprung into action. He, he had a first aid, ha uh, first aid kit handy, and so he took out some oil and wine, poured it on his wounds. Um, original Greek, those were essential oils, in case you were wondering. Uh, that's a joke. Um, in case you were just a little product placement for anyone who uh, sells those. Anyway, um, Poured oil and wine on the wounds, and he says he put him on his animal. So this man was too weak. The man was too weak to walk on his own. That would have been like the, uh, the ancient equivalent of calling an ambulance. Somebody who was just unable to, to walk on their own. He needed to be carried. So the Samaritan took him to an inn, and he paid the innkeeper uh, uh, the money to take care of him. So it's like taking a man to the hospital and saying, okay, here he is, uh, innkeeper, can you take care of him and just send me the bill? Whatever it costs, send me the bill, and I'm going to pay the bill. So it, his compassion cost him something. His mercy cost him something. It wasn't just the financial cost of paying the innkeeper, but it cost him his time, which is a very important resource. It cost him his convenience. He had to be interrupted. His, you know, what, he was, what he was doing that day, it, this, this act of compassion would have uh, changed his day. Now, verse 36 Jesus continues here, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Now, did you notice that Jesus changed the question? 
What was the man's question originally? Who is my neighbor, right? And what did Jesus say? Which of the three proved to be a neighbor? He changed the question. He says, you're asking the wrong question. Let me show you the better question to ask. Verse 37. So the man responded, the lawyer, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He just said, oh, you know, the the merciful one. (laughs) I wouldn't even say who he was. But again, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. He's telling him to do something. He's telling him, be a neighbor by showing mercy. And we've talked about compassion already. We'll talk about mercy. You could define mercy as compassion plus action. Mercy is, uh, in the, there, there's a, um, like in the physical sense, like a mercy ministry. There are other uses of mercy, but in this sense, mercy as, as an action is compassion plus action. So compassion alone, the feeling of compassion alone, that's not the same as mercy. The compassion is what leads you to do mercy, to act with mercy. So compassion is the feeling. That's the sympathy that you might have for people in pain, but mercy is the action. That's what you would do in response to that. Now, since that's Jesus' concluding point, you go and do likewise, we'll spend the rest of our time with four application points about mercy. Christian compassion and mercy, four application points, all right? Here's the first one. Christian mercy is a fruit of the gospel. Christian mercy is a fruit of the gospel. And so we need to remember the context of the story. The context of this whole conversation was about eternal life. It's about a spiritual need that this lawyer was presenting to Jesus. Now, Jesus is not saying, we've already covered this, I'll I'll remind us, Jesus is not saying that doing acts of mercy and compassion is how we inherit eternal life. That would not be the truth because that's anti-gospel. We are not saved by works. We're not saved by acts of compassion. We're not saved by doing good things. Jesus is showing this lawyer his need for grace by exposing to him the full weight of the Old Testament law. The lawyer might have thought, well, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't murdered, you know, haven't done all these bad things, therefore I must be okay. Summary of love your neighbors yourself, which means like, yeah, be nice to people. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you've missed it. You want to know what the commandments 5 through 10 means? Once upon a time. Let me show you what this Samaritan did. That's what the heart of the second table of the law is about. It is, it, is, it is a way of being in the world that is mindful and attentive to those around you. And it is loving those people, not just in a, an emotional sense, but loving people practically, real people. But this lawyer, he was trying to be justified, right? He's looking for some justification for himself, something that could take the heat off that he would have been feeling at that moment. But what Jesus was doing was adding weight. Jesus was showing, hey, you're already condemned by the law. Your failure to to do mercy, as the story indicates, your failure to do that is what condemns you. 
Now, the lawyer didn't see that because he had impure motives. He was testing Jesus. He was trying to justify himself. He wouldn't have heard the truth anyway. But for us reading this, we know the gospel story. And so we see what Jesus is doing. He's adding weight to it to expose our need for the gospel, to show us our sin and our failure to be neighbors in the purest sense. So his failure to understand the law, let alone keep it, that revealed to him his need for divine grace. Revealed to him the fact that he needed to rely on the mercy of God. And the mercy of God that we receive is what compels us to show mercy for others. So just to be clear on this, we are not saved by acts of mercy and compassion. God does not love us or accept us or receive us, save us, justify us based on our acts of mercy or compassion. You could build 100 hospitals and it's not enough. You could house every orphan in the world. You could feed every hungry person in the world and it will never be enough because that is not what saves us. We're saved by divine grace. Now, those who are saved by divine grace, well... Build your hospital if you want to. (laughs) Bring in some orphans if you want to. That's what saved people do because we are called to be good neighbors, to live out the gospel truth that we know and that we've received the mercy of God. That's what puts us out into the world to do these things. But God doesn't accept us on the basis of those things, no matter how good they are and no matter how many of those good things you do. The only way to be justified, the only way to be accepted by God is through faith in Jesus Christ, his only son who died in our place and who rose again on the third day. That is how we are saved. And so in the Old Testament, the law was not given in order to save people, but to show people who were already saved by grace, how to live in it. And so the parable of the Good Samaritan is a case study to expose the heart of the law and apply it to real life for those who are saved by grace to know how to live. And maybe you thought, well, I thought the Ten Commandments are just about, well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't do all these bad things. And, you know, then I'm good, right? Just, just lock myself in a closet like a hermit and never encounter a human being the rest of my life. And then I will have kept the Old Testament law. Isn't that how it works? I wouldn't, would not have done all those bad things. And of course, that's not the heart of the law. The heart of the law doesn't tell us avoid people so you can avoid sin. The heart of God's law tells us when we are engaging with people, here, here are the rules of engagement. And the Good Samaritan story says, this is, here's a practical case study of what it could look like. Traveling along a road, you encounter some grave need. You don't say, well, God's law would have me be defiled. I want to avoid that person so I don't touch them. Well, no, that's that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is like, hey, here's somebody that's hurting. Here's somebody that could use a a hand. I can help them. And the heart of the law of God says, "That's, that's, that's showing love for a neighbor. So as we consider the Christian duty to show mercy, we, we need to keep this gospel of God's grace in view. We can, because, and the thing is, we can't do it all. There will always be more need, more poverty, more suffering, more pain, more hurt than we could ever meet because we live in a world that is masterful at producing pain. So we, we, are, we are incapable of fixing it. There's always going to be more need than we can meet. 
And so we have to, in any need we move towards, we have to keep the grace and mercy of God in view. Otherwise, you'll be overwhelmed. You will be overwhelmed. You'll burn yourself out in a month. So keep the mercy of God in view. And whatever act of mercy the Lord prompts you to move toward, do it freely. It's a good work. Good works are always freely chosen. Not under compulsion, but under compassion. Do it because you love God. Do it because you love people. And just, I'm an overthinker, true confession. I tend to overthink these things, and my head gets twisted up in a knot. It's like, well, if I do this, we'll have to do that. And what about this? And what if they don't respond the right way? Or what if they use it and buy drugs? Or whatever you think, like whatever these things are that might go through your head, don't overthink it. Um, be wise, be, but, but don't, don't allow yourself to be crippled. I think that I'm speaking to myself here, so just feel free to ignore this. I'll preach a little sermon to myself here. If you, if, if you allow yourself to get twisted up in that, you'll never do anything. You, you'll never allow yourself to show mercy to somebody in need because you're always trying to think through the various things that could happen and the bad ways that could work out. Like, that's, that's not what, what Christ is calling us to do. We can, be, we can show compassion for people, and it is, it, is, uh, it is a good thing to do. Okay, that's number one. Here's number two. Be prepared to meet needs as you encounter them. Now, this seems like the most obvious point in the world, but uh, go with me here. Be prepared to meet needs as you encounter them. So as you've already talked about, our world is filled with suffering and unmet needs. And the man in grave need, he wasn't asking for help. He needed it, but he wasn't asking for it. it was, the, the good Samaritan was the one with all the initiative. He saw the need. He assessed a situation. He's like, this man will not make it. He needs help. And I'm going to move toward it in compassion. Now, chances are there's somebody in your relational circle right now that's suffering. And God could lead you to do something about it. Their suffering might not be screaming for your attention. But that doesn't mean it doesn't need attention. It just means it's, they're, not, they're not screaming. But it's out in the open enough for you to notice it. So if it, let's say if it's a financial need, then you are free in Christ to move towards that need and give someone financial assistance. And I, this is just my personal opinion. Whenever uh, you meet a financial need, it's, it's a good idea to do it anonymously if possible. So that way you're not creating a sense of obligation on the other person's part. It, it, it frees you from any relational weirdness that could come as a result. If you can do it anonymously, I think that's a great way to go, but that's your choice. But I think it's, that's, that's a good policy. Try to, like, if you can meet a need anonymously, do it that way. Now, let's say it's an emotional need that somebody has. And, and their, their particular version of suffering that you're moving towards is, is an emotional pain or some psychological pain. You can move toward that need. You can, you can um, spend time with them and, and invite them to coffee or lunch or dinner and uh, lend them your time and your heart and your ears and ask them questions and, and pray for them. I mean, that has incredible healing power. And that doesn't have to cost you any more than what a latte would cost. But, but, the, but the time and the attention that you're giving to somebody is a good Samaritan act of loving your neighbor and that's, I think we, it can be easy to just to dismiss the power of that. The merciful touch of a Christian uh, presence, that has healing power. 
And for what it's worth, um, showing mercy isn't a class thing. Um, we have no idea the income level of the Samaritan or the man he's helping. So it's the man beaten up could have been rich. I mean, somebody robbed him. So maybe he, maybe he was a wealthy guy. Maybe the Samaritan, uh, who knows? Who knows how much? It's not a class thing. It's not as though it's always one direction. It's from those of, of more money to those of less money. It is, this is a Christian love thing, and whatever, whatever resources that you have, whatever strength that you have that could be given to somebody in need, that's, that's the direction it goes. It flows from those in a better position to those that are in a, in a, in a challenging position. And so it's, it's not a class thing. The needs that you encounter may come in all shapes and sizes. It could be physical needs, financial needs, emotional, spiritual. In a broken world, all of these needs are around us all the time, and all of them cause various types of pain. And Christians, this is, we, we have the opportunity to allow the Spirit to work through us to meet needs, to, to move towards people. So suffering knows no class, right? We are all in need at different times. I mean, there are times when you're in need, and you need someone to be a good Samaritan to you. And then there are times when you encounter needs and you need to be the good Samaritan to somebody else. Good neighbors move towards those needs. Here's a third one. I hate this one. Just going to be honest with you. I hate this one because this is probably the hardest one for me. Make yourself interruptible. Make yourself interruptible. Man, I hate that. But I see it here. So... Uh, it's super hard to me because I get very focused, and if I'm if I'm on my way to do something, if I'm if I if I'm whenever whenever I'm traveling, moving, if, I, if I've got a if I've got a goal, then um, I'm like a dog gnawing on a bone. I just <laughs> I go after that thing, and the good Samaritan allowed his agenda to get wrecked by a need that plopped into his path, literally, and that's what stands out to me. It's the suddenness of the encounter. Just this bleeding, dying man laying here on the side of the road. And I'm sure the Good Samaritan didn't start his day thinking, uh, you know, I wonder, uh, wonder what kind of dire need I'm going to run into today that I could meet. The Good Samaritan, he just responded. The urgency of the need interrupted him and made him interruptible. The Good Samaritan allowed this man's need to wreck his plans. And sometimes we need to allow the needs of others to wreck our plans. I'm not good at that. But sometimes we need to do that. We need to be interruptible. Well, let's move on from that one. Uh, <laughs> all right, here's number four, last one. Focus on real concrete needs that are directly in front of you. Focus on real concrete needs that are directly in front of you. And what I mean is flesh and blood human beings that you see that you can talk to, that you can encounter. Not abstractions and not hypothetical uh, needs. The challenge that we have right now is that modern technology has made world travel much easier than ever before. So you can access the whole globe. Ask Steve Freeburn. There's, he's been in every country in this world probably. At least uh, more than a dozen, I'd say. But he's been around. Travel. That, that's like we can get around in the modern world. Not only that, you can get on a smartphone and you can look and have a conversation with somebody eye to eye on the other side of the planet right now. Now, what does that do to us? 
that, that, that can, in a sense, it can shrink the world in good ways because it, it can enable greater degrees of connectivity between people. And so that's a good thing. But what it can also do is, is open our eyes to greater levels of suffering all around the world that we don't have the ability to address. There's, real, there's no way without being physically present that we can do anything about it. But yet, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and there's this sense in our heart that we should do something about it. And it, it's, a, it's a crippling thing. And so two things can happen when, whenever we get in this position. One, it can, over time, it can start to minimize our feeling of obligation to local neighbors. Because there's always somebody that you'll see on your newsfeed halfway around the world, that is suffering more than the person right in front of you. And it can sort of relativize their pain. It's like, well, it's like, well, yeah, they just got in a car wreck and they had a limb amputated, but what about that guy around the globe who lost two children in a, in a fire? That's much worse. And it, it relativizes, and it, it can prevent us from really being able to see and enter into the pain of people around us, right? The other thing it can do is it can maximize our feeling of obligation to faraway neighbors, that we can't possibly help. Um, this is written about by Dostoevsky, the brothers Karamazov, Karamazov, Karamazov. I don't know how to say that word, but you literature people, um, you know, and you're judging me right now. Um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, I can't say that name either. We'll call him Fido. <laughs> um, Brothers Karamazov, now I want to read to you a quote. This is a, a, a paragraph where somebody, this is a person's sort of internal dialogue. Character says, I love mankind, he said, but I am amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. That is, individually, as separate persons. I often went so far to think passionately of serving mankind, and it may be, it would really have gone to the, I would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary. And yet, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone, even for two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there, close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. Focus your mercy on concrete people that are in front of you and not on humanity, not on abstractions, hypothetical people. The Samaritan encountered a man, and he had his blood on his hands in the good, in the good sense to heal him. He picked him up, put him on his own animal. He paid his own money to care for him. He poured his own essential oils on his wounds. It's not something he could do for some victim around the world. And, but that, that is a temptation that we experience. Now, that book was published in 1879 in Russia. So it's not like this is a uniquely modern U.S. thing in America. It's a human thing. 
because hypothetical neighbors are much easier to love. You don't have to smell their bad breath. You don't have to listen to their stupid music. You don't have to listen to their ridiculous opinions. Hypothetical neighbors are fictions that we've written with our own minds. And they're, this, they're these glorified people that are wonderful and helpless, and we get to be the Savior. That's what we do, right? I mean, I do it. It's something that we do. We want to see people in a certain light that makes them more approachable for, this, for showing mercy to them. But it's much harder to love our flesh and blood neighbors who are specific and local and particular enough to be annoying, to, to not show gratitude for the help that we've given them. They're specific enough to be hateable because we know the details. So our temptation is to focus on out there, abstractions, humanity in general, and to have hearts filled with love and compassion for hypotheticals while missing that jerk in your city group that needs a hand, moving again, wasting my time again, That's particular. That, that's not, there's no uh, sub uh, <laughs> passive aggressive digging anybody. Uh, I love helping people move. No, I'm just saying, like, that's. <laughs> now, Alex, don't get upset. I've helped you move twice and it's fine. I love you, brother. We'll move again. I'll help you move again as much as you want. No, I'm just saying, like, that's when, when, there's, when there's something particular that can irritate you about a person, that's hard. That's hard to do. It's hard to show compassion and to reach out and, and mercy to a person with that particular need. It's too real. And so the virtuous thing is like, I love, I love people. I love people. Love God, love people. Don't you love God, love people? I love God, love people too. I'm, I'm going to put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. How do you love the particular people in your life? Okay, I want to read you a C.S. Lewis quote, and then we'll wrap up. This is screw tape letters. And so if you know the screw tape letters, he's talking about um, this is the, you know, the concept. It's uh, a demon writing to a fellow demon about how to oppress their Christian patient. Okay? That's the idea. Here's what the demon wrote. There's going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. The great thing to do is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference, to people he does not know. The malice, therefore, becomes wholly real, and the benevolence largely imaginary. We do this. All right, so we need some gospel hope as we wrap up here. None of us are hypothetical people. Unless we're living in the matrix and Neo is plugged in somewhere, uh, we are real flesh and blood human beings. That's true. We're real humans with real suffering, and we all have desperate needs, eternal needs. We are all in need of God's ultimate mercy. Now, Luke 6, 36, in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus said, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's his mercy. And he finishes saying, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So in the gospel, we learn that to show mercy because God was first merciful to us. 
Jesus is calling us to give away what we've already received. And the good news of the gospel is that the, Jesus suffered the ultimate suffering. He suffered God's judgment, eternal judgment for our sin. So that we could show the ultimate mercy to one another. Jesus was, or so he could show us the ultimate mercy. Jesus was merciful to sinners. Us, real people, flesh and blood, his enemies who were killing him. And in his mercy, he opens up to us his eternal heaven, a, the doors of a real heaven where real saints of God fellowship with one another and reign with him forever, where all suffering will cease, where every need is met, where there's no crying or pain anymore, where we live joyfully with Christ forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this story. Thank you for how challenging it is. Thank you for being a merciful God. Thank you for suffering in our place. You who deserved to never suffer. You took on our pain and suffering. You suffered in your body, your flesh, your real body. Suffering and pain that we deserve for our sin. And yet, you show us mercy. And in so doing, you call us to be merciful. Lord, I pray for practical ways. Show us, lead us by your spirit to think creatively. How can we move towards the, meeting the needs around us? How can we show Christian love to our neighbors? Help us, Lord. And we thank you that you bring us together to fellowship at your table as brothers and sisters in Christ who are forgiven and who feast on your mercy as those who have received mercy. We worship you. We give you all praise. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.